Hey friends, real quick before we dive in, this week we've got a trigger warning on this episode. The main episode, the main topic of the episode today is suicide prevention. Uh, my guest Anne Moss lost her youngest son to suicide, and we will be talking about Charles, about his life and death, and about some of the struggles that Anne went through after Charles died. This episode contains some heavy stuff, but also contains some amazingly educational and helpful and insightful stuff. So I hope that if you are willing and able that you will stick around. But I did want to give you the heads up that we are on the subject of suicide this week. And to make it really easy to find, the suicide hotline U.S. lifeline number is 1-800-273-8255. And the U.S. crisis text line is 741741. I'm going to put those numbers and a couple other numbers both in the show description so it's easy to find right where this episode's at and also in the show notes in case you ever need them. So there you have it. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Ann Moss. Let's dive in. Tell me a little bit about who you are, why you're here today. Well, my name is Ann Moss Rogers. I used to own a digital marketing firm and in 2015, I lost my younger son to suicide. And then I guess the next year, I finally decided I don't want to do digital marketing anymore. I want to do suicide prevention. So I shifted gears. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. So I was executive director for a youth mental health organization for which I had been on the board for 10 years for a little over a year. Then I realized I didn't really like being an executive director. And I decided that I was going to write a book and be a speaker on suicide prevention. And I was going to make a living doing that, which is kind of like uh, rolling a spike ball uphill in a, in a snowstorm. <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. That. So it's always evolving and changing and going in different directions. And I really like that. And I find that very exciting. And it's odd that I'd want to be in this place every single day because my son was a lot more than his cause of death. But it definitely was how his life ended. And if I can get anybody to, to rethink or reconnect with life at a time when they feel disconnected from it, I feel, I feel good. And that has been part of my healing process. So that's why I do what I do. That makes a lot of sense. I think the perfect place to kind of dive into your story then is tell us more about Charles, not just his death, but his life too, because he is kind of, he is the foundation of what this has become for you. Well, he was the funniest, most popular kid in school. Oh, he was effervescent and funny and talented, but he was also frustrating and always debating and pushing and he was innovative. He was a creative genius and all the weird stuff that goes with being a creative genius. He had excellent timing, comic timing. So he would also adjust his conversation and his jokes or, you know, his, his comic 
stuff based on his audience. So like after he died, his friends would tell me stuff they told him that I didn't really find funny, but they found it hilarious. And then I was comparing and like, oh my gosh, he adjusted his conversation based on his audience. He was great on stage, always held the audience in his hand, um, and was, could be a real show stealer, you know, not really trying to do that, but he was also an empath. And in a world where no one listens or connects, Charles always made time to do that. And I really think that was his greatest gift. Uh, it was letting other people know that they matter. And that was why he was as popular as he was, because he connected with people on a deep emotional level that not a lot of people are willing to do. So he would connect with them when they were happy or sad. And, and he shared a lot of those stories with me. And I thought, well, who is this kid? I remember him coming home and talking about a young man who had been in an accident and was a paraplegic as a result when he was 18 years old. And he went by to see this kid and support him and listen to him. And the kid really opened up to him and, and I don't know his name because he didn't want to share that with me, which I honored. But he told me about their conversation and I thought, he's 15. How does he know all this? So we think as parents that we're teaching our children, but I think we need to pause and understand that we need to learn from them too. Mm -hmm. And I also think that every child needs an adult other than their parent to to sort of connect with and, and be with because I don't think the parent is always the go-to person and I think having another adult in a child's life is it's very crucial mm -hmm. to their own emotional well-being giving them somebody else they can go talk to that isn't so emotionally invested in how they quote unquote turn out yeah yeah, agreed. I think that's such an important thing, and and sounds like he was quite, quite good at finding finding those people and connections and being that person as well. It sounds like right, he yeah. really was, and unfortunately, his experimentation in drugs led him to heroin eventually, and it made him feel like a king. And to a kid who lived with depression. You know, that feeling was just intoxicating. And I think he was predisposed to addiction because it runs in our family. And what Charles didn't recognize as a strong extrovert is how isolating that drug is. Mm. And the more he got into that culture, the less connected he was with life and his friends because they didn't know what to do with them because he was so obsessed and then would spend all night, you know, throwing up and, you know, and he was angry. Why couldn't they still be his friend? And it was like, 
they want you, not this drug. And it, that isolation is what finally uh, drove him to, to suicide, other than a multitude of other things. You know, the substance use disorder definitely had a huge impact on his death by suicide. Mm, yeah. Did he struggle? I'm trying to think of the right way to word this question. So obviously there were struggles. Was the depression and the mental health and the substance abuse, was this a long struggle that y'all faced together or did this kind of ramp up quickly for him? So I believe my son started to struggle with anxiety and some depression as early as fourth or fifth grade. I think he always, and I learned a lot about Charles through reading his rap lyrics, which I included in my first book, Diary of Broken Mind. So I have a lot more information than maybe a lot of parents do as a result. But I think he started to struggle around fifth grade because people told me things that he would say and after the fact that kind of indicated that there was an early struggle, only he didn't know what it was. I could tell he wasn't loving school, and I know why, because that was when uh, the standards of learning and all this testing started happening when he was in elementary school. So he got into it prior to that, but once they started all this worksheet and standardized testing, you know, a creative genius doesn't want to have it sit around and do worksheets all the time. And he just couldn't get into it. And he was really, really bright, but, you know, sitting there learning algebra, what am I going to do with this for the rest of my life? You know, and what, how can I argue that? I, you know, it's like, you know, shouldn't I be learning how to rent an apartment? You know, why am I sitting here doing algebra? And he would bring me videos on different educational ideas. And I couldn't disagree, but that's what I got to work with. You know, I, I don't have the right choice. You've got, you've got to graduate from high school. Wow. So he, I believe it escalated as pre-adolescent and an adolescent. So then he had a sleeping disorder called delayed sleep based syndrome. And of course, that wrecked your mental health right there. So in elementary school, he wasn't able to fall asleep until like 11 o'clock at night. That would advance in middle school till about midnight. So I had to find a middle school. We went to private middle school that was close and started a little later so that he could get some sleep. Yeah. But when high school came around, there weren't a lot of options. You know, they all started at like 7.30. And if you picked a private one, it was one you had to drive to across town. So you had to get up earlier. So we ended up going to the public school because they were able to adapt the schedule to allow Charles an extra time to sleep. But I, it wasn't the best choice, but I don't really think there were a lot of choices for him that would have would have fit right and it was in high school that he started to experiment with drugs and alcohol because i really think that's when the depression manifested itself and the thoughts of suicide were more frequent so his use of drugs and alcohol was really to stop those thoughts because to him why don't i numb it instead of my 
killing myself because isn't that a better solution? Meanwhile, we didn't know. I mean, I'm seeing this happy-go-lucky kid constantly having friends over. And I mean, this kid had a ton of friends and always wanted to spend the night. Can I have somebody over for dinner? I mean, he's just relentless, relentless. And when he had people over, it was all night long. He didn't let anybody sleep. So I would have to get up and say, you got to, you know, be quiet. We're trying to sleep. It's 3 a.m. And then, you know, the kids would go back and they'd be cranky and angry all day because they hadn't slept. So it was just a difficult situation that I couldn't figure out why he was always having people over. And I would find out after reading his music that he was afraid of what he was going to do to himself. Mm -hmm. He wanted to surround himself with people because those thoughts scared him. And he wanted to tell someone, I think. But instead, he hid it and he never came out and said it. But of course... In 2010, it wasn't talked about. And I would ask mental health professionals, you know, about suicide. Was that a concern? And they would glaze over the topic and clearly ignore me and never cover it because they didn't know. And I didn't know they didn't know. They just kept saying, well, he's high risk. And they never defined what that meant. Right. Do you think? It's so, let me rephrase that. I think this is where it's so important. I worked with doing crisis counseling with high school kids for a while. And one of the things that really hit home with me and the kids I was working with is we needed to give them language to talk about those thoughts, that there was a difference. And I had, I specifically remember one teen who was afraid to say anything to me because they were afraid I would call and put them on a psychiatric hold and all of these terrible thoughts. And I said, there's a difference between having suicidal thoughts wanting to be dead and having a plan of action and I want to be able to discuss that delineation with them and I felt it was important for us to be able to open that door to the conversation do you does that do you think that would have do you think that's the right line of thought oh definitely in fact we always tell people reach out for help and get them phone numbers but what we never do is say, how do you tell someone you want to kill yourself? Right. So when people do a Google search and land on one of what I call my cringeworthy pages, you know, with the title that is scary, how to do this awful thing in your life. I also have a link to how to tell your parents you want to die. And number two is what do you say? You know, how do you tell someone you want to kill yourself? So it can be if you want to tell a parent, and it can be if you want to tell anyone, you know, how do you choose them? Because we don't give people that language. And so first of all, we need to tell them who to choose. You know, you want to choose somebody empathetic. You don't want to choose that person that's constantly giving you advice. I mean... They're not going to meet you where you are. You need to tell somebody who's going to meet you where you are. Who are some good examples of people to say? And then finally, what is the script? And I've put examples. I've really been struggling lately. 
these thoughts really, really scare me and I need you to listen to me. This is really important. But I have been struggling with thoughts of suicide and I don't know what to do and I'm asking you for your help. So lots of times the kids will put in a comment or they will tell me in a message what's going on and then they say, what do I say to my parent? Usually it's whatever you just wrote to me. Because you don't, and then they'll say, well, I don't want to tell my parent, fine, tell school counselor, tell your minister, tell your coach, tell your favorite teacher, show them this article, and they'll have the next steps of what to do, because they need to connect you with somebody who's doing an assessment. Part two is this non-more-than-one thing. And that's why I work with and give presentations to social workers and why we have applied for a grant locally in order to teach our local social workers on assessment and safety planning. We do not want social workers to say, oh, they said the word suicide, that's 911. Let me call them and get them in a paper gown and guns and badges and hand them over to the ER and have them sit there for three days. No. Now, their pre-suicidal thought is worthy of that kind of attention. In fact, only maybe 5% are. <laughs> if they are holding a firearm and they are holding people hostage in a house or they're standing on a bridge, then yes, that might be a 911 call. But it's rarely, you know, something we have to immediately turn over to the local authorities. One time there was a mother who said, I'm trying to talk to my daughter. She's been in the corner curled up all day and she's not responding. And I said, you don't need to call 911, I don't think. But here's, try this. <clears throat> Say, Nancy, we need to go to the local mental health hospital and get you a mental health assessment and I'm going to take you there now. Will you stand up and go with me to the car? And she did. She complied. And they were able to get that assessment because you want to assess that risk. Now, is that assessment perfect? No, no. And I tell social workers all the time, check in with other colleagues. But no plan is ever perfect. No plan is ever going to prevent. You can't prevent somebody else from taking their life. You can help them save their own life. Yeah. That that's really all we can do. And thank you for what you, what you did because your gut feeling really was right on the money because we want to lay out the expectations because they're fearful. A lot of times they're not telling because they're fearful of what will happen. Yeah. So I think we need to be very transparent in schools and in communities. If you tell, this is what the protocol is. And the last resort is that inpatient stay. Yeah. And I think you hear the media and kind of the, the rumors and the horror stories that it's always that 911 response and it's such a big scary word that it's always going to evoke this response and I love the idea of having scripts I hadn't even thought about literally having a script for somebody to take to somebody else and say hey I'm having these thoughts I need help 
and here's a resource like and then having a standard like here's what to do next because like you said there's so many steps if we can just create some space in those thoughts and keeping it simple too like the example you gave where she just went and said like can you stand up and go get in the car with me we don't need to worry about anything that's after the car yet are you able and willing to stand up and get in the car with me can be the first step and we'll worry about what's next next I love that you said that. I love that you said that. You're saying exactly what all of us say. Stay in the moment. Don't think about future and what the outcome is. Stay in the moment. That's so perfect. And and you just naturally have that. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. I yeah. So I want to go back then to your story a little bit. So When Charles died by suicide, that that moment, those days, weeks, months after, I, I feel silly asking, like, how did you feel? Because obviously that had to be soul crushing. But can you share a little bit about that time and space? I, I, I know this is a thing you talk about, so I feel safe kind of asking and such a hard question. So... I I was obviously devastated. I obviously would get up in the morning. I didn't want to get out of bed. Just taking a shower would take everything out of me. And this went on for months. So I, I engaged what I now know is a DBT skill. So what do you do when life explodes in your face? And, you know, you're in a war. <laughs> or you're being bombed or you've got to find your toolbox. You've got to build that toolbox. So I needed to get up in the morning and I knew if I lounged around in bed, I would just wallow all day. Now, I'm not saying you never spend a a whole day in bed because sometimes people need that restorative time. It is not good for me because I'm very restless and would just start to ruminate and, you know, it would be really bad. And then I wouldn't sleep the following night. So it's never good for me. And it's certainly not never good in consecutive days, like over months to do that. Because you're going to lose those connections. So my first one was breaking it down into micro steps. And my first step for getting out of bed is turn around, put your feet on the floor. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do anything else. And then when I do that, I'd be like, well, I really need to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And then from there, I'd be like, my teeth, they're really gross. And I go wash my hands. So I'd be at the sink, washing my hands, I'd do my teeth, and I'd be like, what was next? And I'm going to be honest with you, after that, lots of times I heard a post-it note of what needed to come next, because one time I got into the shower with my pajamas on. I forgot that you have to take off your clothes. Step in there. Shower. I had trouble sequencing, putting things in order. I mean, it was like, I couldn't follow a recipe. If it had more than two ingredients, uh, I was done. 
So multiple stat items had to be written out. I mean, it wasn't productive. So opposite action is what that's called. And I actually wrote an article called DBT skills for grief and loss, which actually you can apply these to anything, but the examples I have in that are based on, on loss and, and, and how you manage those days. So another one is radical acceptance, learning to live with that loss. And that's really what the grief journey is all about is learning to live with that loss, because there's several times you'll think, I, I want to go back and redo that. And somehow in your mind, you think you can hit some reverse button and do it over. And you have to, you know, talk yourself back into, no, this, this really did happen. Then it is managing that pain and understanding it. So intense waves of pain are usually 60 to 90 seconds. So those would be the ones that took me to my knees and I'd be curling up in the bottom of the shower, bawling my eyes out. But you can't, you don't do that for an hour. Those intense periods. And once they lift, you take advantage of that. So you have to sit with the feeling. You have to feel the feelings because in order to heal, you have to feel. But when they lift, you need to take that as an opportunity to distract yourself and move forward again. So I did a lot of exercise. So when I was really, really having a day that I was struggling, I made sure I got outside. I made sure that I ran and I made sure that I really sweat and I put a lot into it. And at first, I would be crying. My eyelashes would freeze. My legs felt like thousand pound weight. But by the end, there was this this feeling, of, you know, that was tolerable. So you can't push the pain away, but you can lessen your suffering. And I think that's really important. Another thing I did is I found my people. And I've found a support group and some people want an individual counselor and some people do better with the support group. And there are a lot of different options. They're faith-based ones. They're ones for, if you've lost a child, there's one if you lost someone to suicide, to murder, to overdose, or, you know, if you're lost a spouse or to COVID, they're all different kinds of groups and we do go through a lot of the same emotions and being in the room with other people who are going through this it's just such a cathartic and amazing experience and what people say is I can't go in there but by your telling your story and how you're coping you're actually helping someone else <laughs> and you're helping yourself and then the, and I have lots of points, but I'm going to make one more. And that is writing. Writing helps you process your experience. If you don't like writing, record it, you know, do a vlog instead. <laughs> but it allows you to process all of those emotions. And I've written over 3,000 pages on my blog, hundreds of articles, two books. 
<laughs> you know, thousands and thousands of pages. And I can tell you that it has really, really helped. All of those tips are amazing. And I see that kind of, they can all happen in once and they all kind of evolve on each other in this evolution of tools. And I would imagine like with your writing that even now, because I know you are still putting content out, you find new subjects and new nuance and revisit old topics again and kind of the next layer comes to light and can be worked on now. Right. I mean, like you said today, you were talking about 911. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to groups about that. And I'm like, you know, I need to write an article on that. Yeah, exactly. But I didn't think, you know, so yeah, it, it is that evolution and you never get over it, but you just kind of weave it into the tapestry of your life. Yeah. And you have a long, beautiful life. And it's that's where we learn and we grow is those ugly speed bumps or when life explodes in our faces. And when we survive those times, we really do build resilience. We can't undo them. We don't have that power. But yeah. we do have the power to figure out how we're going to react to it and how we're going to grow from it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And that's kind of the premise of this entire podcast where that idea came from is this, this growth from it. I also want to dive back because I've, I, I constantly articulate talking about baby steps with people. I also post-traumatic stress. I'm a combat veteran, was wounded in Iraq. And yeah. And one of the things I talk about is baby steps. And in the worst of my PTSD, when I couldn't get out of bed and I was kind of struggling to exist, I made a rule that if I got out of bed, showered, and even if I put on my dirty pajamas again and got back in bed, I would allow myself to count that as a successful day. And then taking that shower got easier. And so it became take a shower and put on clean clothes and then take a shower, put on clean clothes and go for a drive, even if I didn't go anywhere. And so when you said that, like, yeah, I started with these little steps of literally just turning and putting my feet on the floor. And I was like, there, that's that's my baby steps that I'm always talking about. And to have somebody articulate it back to me in like such even smaller steps that I've been breaking it down into is I think it's when all else seems impossible, what is the smallest step forward that we can take right now can be so powerful in the long run. And so I really wanted to just highlight that again for a second. It is. And, and that little small step is one step to healing, one step to you know, moving forward, it's moving forward. And that that's all you're looking to do. Exactly. And, you know, at first I knew I wanted to go out and run, but I didn't get up and go, oh, I'm going to go run. You know, yep. like I had to break it down because yeah, I would put on my clothing and go, I forgot my underwear and my socks. <laughs> <laughs> right. Where are my And I had to have those steps written out. It took me a lot longer to, to complete those. So I, when we feel overwhelmed, when I feel overwhelmed now, I'm like, what is the most important thing I need to do next? Exactly. Not think about the whole day, but just do that one thing and then go back later when I feel less overwhelmed and start just putting it on a list so I can check it off. Yep. And I love what you said 
about the micro steps as well, because it reminded me of Ashley and she wrote, she wrote a post on my blog and it said she struggles or lives with bipolar disorder. And she said, I make one mantra and that is I'm going to show up, you know, no matter what I show up. And I just thought that was brilliant because that's how I felt. I made the commitment, even during COVID, to get up, do something to my hair. I may be dressed not in fancy clothes, but I got dressed every day. Yeah. And that was important to me. And after being a brain surgery patient for a brain tumor for a number of years, and after that finished, that's what helped pull me out, is that I had to kind of go through that routine of being a normal person to start to feel normal again. Well, normal-ish, because it never been normal, but. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and coming back to these tools when, when they're needed a second time, absolutely. In those, in that evolution then, where did you realize that you wanted to do this as your job? The, the decision to write the book, become the speaker, was that kind of a like it clicked and this is where I'm needed or did that like my my evolution was kind of accidental of like I happened to agree to a speaking gig and then was like oh I could have an impact in this space doing this thing like how did that play out for you and how did that also coincide then with your recovery because I'm sure you're still processing this grief as you're now being very public with this grief well I started by writing an article and then I was supposed to, so right after, I, I was a speak, public speaker before my, my son died, but I talked about social media and women in business. And my women in business topic was taking off. And I was booked for that after he died. And I went ahead and did that topic. And I thought, I'm just not going to do this very well. And it went great. But it started to feel like I needed to talk about our story, but I wasn't ready to do it yet. And then I was booked to do the women topic about nine months after he died. And there was a really small group that said, how about if you tell your story, if you're ready, if not, you can do the other topic. And that started to marinate. Now, I, I don't know that I would recommend diving right in without getting kind of some safety guidelines in mind because there's certain things you don't want to say to an audience because you don't know who might be triggered by that and somebody did give me some advice prior to that presentation where luckily I was able to take some things out that that probably would have triggered somebody. And then one time somebody said, well, that's very triggering afterwards. And then I learned something from that. Mm -hmm. It's probably best to get that kind of training up front if you have a very emotional story. And that can, and not just around suicide, but any kind of trauma. Because we don't want to spend, if it's an hour talk, we don't want to spend 50 minutes talking about the ugly trauma and five minutes talking about how we got out of it. We really want to just talk about the darkness, but then all the steps to 
you know, how it made us a better person and how we managed all that now. And I think it's really important to craft that story. So anyway, I, I went out there and I guess the first time I felt Charles with me and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. But making a living speaking on this topic, it took a long time. <laughs> and then it took the two books because you've got to establish that credibility. Mm -hmm. The first book stopped me. So it wrote itself in my head and I had to get it out on paper. So before he died, I would sort of imagine myself writing a book because our family was in such chaos and I was feeling such despair that I needed to make up this fake hero story of how it was going to be in order to just make it through every day. So that was the story I was writing. And then when he died and the next day, I, not the next day, but the following day when I woke up, it started writing itself in my head. And then I had to accept that shift of it's going to be about a death instead. And who would want to read about a death? And how do I start it? And by the time I sat down to write that book and I had talked to a friend of mine and she said, just write it. Don't edit, just start writing and get that first ugly draft. And that's what I did. And I swear I didn't lift my head for six months. I just wrote every day. I did have this, you know, ED job, but I found time to write every single day. And in six months, I had an ugly first draft. <clears throat> but what a remarkable progress process that was it sure very cathartic it let me touch emotions and work through things and by the time i wrote the book it wasn't an angry manifesto you know mm -hmm. uh, when i wrote a newspaper article previously that wasn't didn't end up an angry manifesto but there were times in the edit process where that's what it sounded like <laughs> you know you got to work through all those different yeah. emotions that you have yep mm. and then for the second book somebody uh a big publishing company called me and asked me would i write emotionally naked the teacher's guide to preventing suicide and i said yes but i want a co-writer and i called dr kim o'brien and she was like yes whatever it is yes we're gonna do this together and she only listened to the details. So I'll get the details later. I'm just saying yes for now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. It was. That's very cool. So to shift gears on this, how has the conversation around suicide evolved since Charles' death? And where do you want to see that evolution continue going? Okay. We're going to, I'm writing this down. <laughs> So back in 2010, no one was talking about it. No one wanted to talk about drugs. No one wanted to talk about suicide. And by not talking about it, the kids were, but we weren't. And as a result, because a lot of people thought about, well, if we talk about it, we're giving them the idea. And that's just not true. Because talking about it allows people to talk. 
So the science needed to kind of catch up with that thought. So it was, I couldn't get in to speak on this topic in many places. Rotary always had the door open and they had their door open with youth mental health and my topic since 2010. And I'm starting to recognize now that people are seeking me out, you know, to come fly to California to speak on this topic. Because a lot of people are afraid to talk about youth suicide, you know, what to do about it and how do we craft that talk to not only weave in our story, but make it something that people learn from. Mm -hmm. So it has evolved. It's been slow. And I think the pandemic, you know, put its foot on that accelerator. And now it's really in the spotlight because people are losing their children and they are willing to listen now. Unfortunately, that's what it took, where it is to go. So everybody is complaining of lack of resources. And I do and see and understand that. And I think we need to give more social workers the tools to be able to do those assessments and planning. But I think the future is students really supporting each other and taking a lead in this and being more intentional with their own mental health because the adults are moving way too slow. So when I go speak to high school groups, I'm like, y'all don't have to wait for all these slow adults. You could start doing something yourself now. You know, this kid just raised $14,000 for this group and this education. So-and-so just started an out-of-the-darkness law at his high school. So you can put your passion into action. You can, you know, my niece started a, a panel and the broom was packed. So she got students to tell their story and then the school counselor worked with each student about telling their story and how to craft it so that, you know, it was a story of inspiration and not, you know, pure despair. It has to be in a place of healing in yeah. order to share their story, to be ready. Because not yeah. everybody's ready. So she did a panel basically on body image. So a number of people who were struggling with body image and eating and disordered eating. And the room was packed, but everybody wanted to get in on this. And so they had to actually plan another one because it was such a popular topic. But I think that's where the future is, is, is teens and young adults being more intentional and not sitting there like, helpless fish on the side of the bank, like some parents think of them as, but becoming advocates for their peers. That, because we're never going to have enough practitioners, right? Right, exactly. And I love that too, because a lot of times, I mean, when I was a teen, my first people I went to were other teens. Like we are, we often go to our friends and if this is a thing, if these are conversations we know how to have, both saying I'm having these thoughts and let me support you while you're having these thoughts and how do we bring this to the attention of the adults in our lives like give them the power yeah there's no reason to wait for us slow adults like I, I absolutely love that and and the resources that you're providing there very cool and I also think we need to be more intentional both as parents 
as aunts and uncles, as grandparents and schools and community leaders in helping kids build resilience and coping strategies because we're not getting as much face-to-face time. There's not as much time on the playground. So their coping skills are underdeveloped. So we need to provide, and lots of times that's just icebreakers and connection games, you know, for getting people to know each other. That in and of itself creates a foundation of suicide prevention and lowering things like eating disorders and self-harm and substance misuse. And also, and I'll give you one example. So one teacher, she did the, she's a chemistry teacher. She had lost a child to suicide the year before, and she implemented this mental health check-in on Mondays from, you know, from one to five. How are you feeling? Five being the highest, one being the lowest. What the kids really liked about it is they had a second to be seen and heard. Mm -hmm. And that's the feedback I usually get when I play this game with teens and young adults is that they, you know, they feel like such a one in a million with this digital world out there. You know, they feel so much smaller and insignificant. Mm -hmm. And I think that gives them a moment of significance. As that game evolves, as the semester goes on, the kids will end up sharing with each other, you know, I had a one because my mom got a cancer diagnosis. Well, somebody else in the classroom has been through something similar and can connect that child. Yeah. But it gives, you know, it's that diversity and inclusion thing. And when kids feel like they are connected and they belong, then the stress goes down and the grades and the, you know, they go up. And I love the reminder here that this doesn't have to start big, deep, complicated, emotional. It can be as simple as a real quick, everybody, one through five, where are we at today? Or let's play a quick icebreaker game and learn about everybody's favorite animal. Like, you know, those things that simple to help create the connection that then later on in the semester can be a a deal breaker and emotional support if and when somebody gets hit with something. I love that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we're not going to change the education system overnight. And maybe your school is like, no, we're not having suicide prevention in this school. You can start doing that game and you're building that foundation and you're not even talking about it. Yeah. Yep. I love that. Well, This has been amazing. And I think I could pick your brain all day on this subject. Will you tell us where we can find you online? Because I know your websites are a wealth of resources, information. Where do we learn more about you, about suicide prevention, about keeping ourselves safe, all of that? So amosrogers.com is my speaker site. And uh, emotionallynaked.com is where you'll find a ton of resources and articles and if anybody writes me, I can, you know, send them to a link to something that is relevant <clears throat> to their needs. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm going to make sure those are in the show notes. There will also be some crisis line information and all of that in show notes and on my website. So it's easy to find. Thank you. And my books too, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. 